Hello, I'm Seb Coe, and welcome to the Extraordinary Tales podcast brought to you by CSM. Throughout this series, I've been talking to people from across the sporting and business landscape about their journey so far. We've covered triumphs, disappointments, overcoming adversity, and how they tackle the pressing issues confronting the world of sport and entertainment today. Joining me today for my first podcast of the year is a woman who won 64 tennis titles in Scotland during her junior and senior career before qualifying as a tennis coach aged just 17. After graduating from Edinburgh University, she later went on to become the initial coach for both her sons, Andy and Jamie. Okay, the cat's now out of the bag. Uh, before handing over the reins as their professional careers beckoned and blossomed. More on them a little later. A true Scot, she's never forgotten her roots. Today she continues to bring tennis into rural and hard-pressed communities across Scotland, whilst also travelling the world following her son's successes in the game. Just recently, she has helped shape and then deliver for Sky TV a terrific series called Driving Force, which gets behind the personal odysseys of women who have won Olympic and world titles and unpacks the roadblocks that they have had to circumnavigate en route to the pinnacle of their sport. But it's her affiliation with tennis that has taken her from the soggy community courts of Dunblane to the centre court of Wimbledon. What a first podcast of the year. And it's a very warm welcome to Judy Murray. Judy, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be talking to you about all of this. And thanks for the intro. <laughs> now, well, you know what they are. I had a history tutor that once told me at Loughborough University that we only ever approach perfection on our CV. But I did give it as good a go as I possibly could today. <laughs> I loved it. It's a great CV, by the way. Judy, let me, let me start in a slightly lighthearted way, because I've always thought that the true test of status is not what the great and the good, the elevated, uh, say about you. It's often the instinctive reaction from ordinary folk. So picture this this morning. I've just finished my early morning training session. I have a very tough young Scottish trainer. His name is Kieran. He was actually a junior international for Scotland in the pool. And as I'm signing off, he said, have you got a busy week? And I said, yeah, but it actually starts quite well. So I said, I've got a podcast to do today. And he went, oh, have you got a podcast? Which is slightly disarming, note to our marketing teams. Uh, And once I got over that, I said, actually, you'll like this because I'm interviewing Judy Murray. And I always like to embarrass my guests early doors before. And before I'd almost finished the sentence, he said, oh, you know, I was at school with her niece in uh, in." I hope I've got this right. Beaconhurst School at Bridge of Allen, and she's a national treasure. Oh, I love him already. Well, I will introduce you to him. I mean, he's a he's a hard ass trainer. I have to tell you, I sort of crawl out of his sessions pretty much uh, every day. But that was his instinctive view. So, do you see yourself as a national treasure? <laughs> no, I can't. I can't say. I can't say. I see it like that. Um, you know, as, as you said in the intro, I'm, I'm very patriotic, very true to my roots, um, love what I do and obviously want to share my sport in my country as much as I possibly can. So I kind of put myself out there. I've spent a lot of time in lockdown, you know, talking to uh, sports leaders in schools, universities, just really using my time to share experiences. And I just I really enjoy doing it. And I think it's a throwback to 
you know, when I was young, there was no infrastructure, no opportunity. And then when I started to get into coaching and I started as a volunteer at our local club when Jamie and Andy were tiny, I really just did it for something to do a couple of hours a week. I wasn't a coach. And I discovered that there were still no coaches in our area. There was still no infrastructure. There was still nothing, nothing going on. And really, you know, when I was trying to learn how to coach, I was pretty much having to teach myself because there was nobody to learn from. And as I went on the journey with um, players from the club, from my county, and then nationally and internationally, there was still nobody to learn from in Scotland. So I had to travel to get the uh, get the education for myself. I had to use my mouth to ask people, you know, to, to share with me, you know, people who'd been there and, and done it. And I think that because I had to um, work so hard to make things happen in order for me to learn the journey of how you produce tennis players, um, I think it's made me so open to sharing what I already know because that wasn't there for me and I know how tough it was. So, um, yeah, I'm probably out there a lot, maybe a lot more than people would, would realise sharing sharing my experiences and 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 my areas of expertise i've always sensed i've sensed it's got better recently but you're right there isn't really any great handover letter is there from one generation of coach to another in fact sometimes you know my as you know my dad was my coach but they can all be a bit tribal in terms of keeping information to themselves and not really wanting to share it but i i've sensed recently that there are there's there's a great deal more collegiate understanding that good coaching goes way, way beyond, you know, protecting your athlete from, you know, competing forces. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I certainly can see that in tennis because our numbers are very low um, compared, you know, if you compare the number of people who play tennis um, in Britain with France, for example, that has a similar population, they prob- France has 10 times as many people playing tennis as we do. We don't have the culture of tennis uh in in the, in that same way yet and because the numbers are small that's i think one of the main reasons why coaches get very protective around the players that they have that they're scared to lose them to somebody else when actually if we all shared more and got together more um i think we'd have a much bigger pool and we would produce a lot more um at the top at the top level and that's really kind of the way that I see it and also to share with other sports I think that's something I don't see enough of that sports sharing with each other I mean we're all trying to do the same thing where you know there's so many synergies out there and I mean I just recently did something with netball where I was just experimenting with a lot of the exercises that I used to de- uh, to develop skills in tennis with a tennis ball that we can actually do a lot of them with a netball as well so being able to go into a disadvantaged area or a remote area and say okay here's a whole load of exercises that they work for netball they probably a lot of them would work for football as well and they were uh, of course they work for tennis so I, I just I wish that happened a lot more there was more sharing across sports and not this you know, because the pool's so small, you're scared to, oh gosh, you know, if we share that, we open up that door, do I run the risk of losing some of my players to another coach or to another sport? It's an interesting point, actually, because while you were saying that, I it just uh, triggered a thought in me because, of course, uh, a fellow Scott, a well-known uh, coach, my, my national director of coaching when I was years ago in the team, Frank Dick, of course, used to work with Boris Becker. Uh, and Jan Tyriak uh, brought him in to help with conditioning and, and all the stuff that he learned from athletics. And I think 
I'm not sure how he shows his face in Scotland at the moment, but I understand he's also working with the England rugby team. You might have a view <laughs> on that, though. Yeah, I, I haven't actually... Uh, I saw him probably about 15 months ago at um, a UK coaching awards night. I was sitting beside him. And actually, you won't know this, but he when they, they gave me this Lifetime Achievement Award and I made a, a, a speech, a thank you speech afterwards. And I thanked Frank Dick... Um, and I thanked a guy called Rod Thorpe, who you might know. From oh, yeah, I remember Rod at Loughborough. And both of them were, like, taken aback that they had no idea the impact that their workshops had on me as a young coach wanting to learn. Rod, in terms of, you know, creative thinking, and Frank, in terms of athlete-centred and understanding all the spokes of the wheel and so forth. And they were both... One shaped the way that I coached and the other shaped my belief in I could do this in Scotland. I could produce players if I follow the the two philosophies. And neither of them had any idea of that impact. It wasn't like I spent loads of time with them. They just really put light bulbs on in my brain and and they have really shaped what I did and the way that that I did it. Let me, me, in a way, let me pick up a a similar theme, but I'm going to go back to the beginning if you don't mind because it's a coaching theme and you and I probably have from different aspects a slightly a a similar view about the challenges because my father was my coach you have been instrumental in certainly the in the formative years uh, of of Jamie uh, and Andy and you know where I'm going with this. So the question I guess I asked you, and it's, it's always an interesting one because I get it so often, where's the balance between supportive parent and so-called pushy parent? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a good question. And, and I, I was given that pushy parent overbearing mother tag, I think, Andy's first Wimbledon in 2005 by the media. They just determined that that's what I was, having never met me, not knowing anything about me. It, it really opened my eyes to the... You know how if you are a, a sporty dad, you're a competitive driven dad. But if you're a, you know, a sporty mum and you're kind of always there, you, you become the pushy mother, the overbearing mother. Um, but I think that I've always railed against it because for me, it's absolutely isn't isn't true. I wanted my kids to enjoy sport, all sport. I loved sport. Um, and so I kind of did with my kids what my parents did with me and my brothers when I was small and basically give them the opportunity to try lots of different sports at a young age, but also to play with them myself. You know, they're, they're, they had a mum, dad, grandparents who were all love sport and we would be always out, outside with them um, playing all sorts of different games. You know, it was never just about tennis. And I think there's a big, big difference between um, pushing to make something happen or to open doors to create opportunity than pushing your kids to do something you know my I can honestly say I've never had to push my kids to do anything tennis wise or even any other sport they loved it and they loved it because we created an environment for them firstly within the family then within the local club and then at our national center which was you know full of boys girls old young adults kids and everybody in it together, you know, a real community spirit. And they loved hanging out at the tennis club. The tennis club was next to the golf club. Both were next to a park that they could play football and cricket in, feed the ducks. It was just a lovely, natural village type setting. And, um, and I think that 
when I started to coach at the club, and as I say, I wasn't a coach. I was just somebody who was passionate and I wanted something to do to keep me active. And I discovered that I just loved teaching. I loved sharing my sport with others. And in time, I did more qualifications and learned how to teach it in my way, um, hopefully um, quite well. But the key for me was was community. It was community engagement and loads of people because if the environment is fun, you've got lots of friends there, you can learn from the older kids and the adults and everybody is mucking in. You've got a you've got a real really got a recipe for for success, um, so yeah. For for me, it was never about pushing them to do anything, but I, and I I do always say this that because at the club I was kind of responsible for all of the kind of coaching program and the teams and so forth, and you know, you can't do everything yourself. So you bring it, I brought in all the mums. I, I, I created a mums army and they ran some of the teams, the competitions, the cafes, etc., etc. They put the notices up on the board, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, for me, it was, I was always kind of the person who was leading everything, making everything happen. But I was never pushing it and I was never pushing, I was never pushing my kids. And I think there's a big difference I do think there's still a lot of people out there who think that I brought my kids up to be tennis players because I had been a tennis player and that nothing could be further from the truth. Um, I actually think if somebody had told me what I was letting myself in for, I probably would never have tried to do it. But I was just going into the unknown, you know, they're quite good. What do we have to do next? And I think it helped me a lot that I was always responsible for more than just my own kids, that I had all these other children to look after. Um, and that probably stopped me from being so emotionally attached to just what Andy and Jamie were doing. And I think you find that in an individual sport that the onus is so much on the parents to make it all happen that very often parents get overly emotionally and financially invested in what the child is doing. Whereas, you know, if my kids had gone into a team sport and Andy was a very good footballer, he could easily have gone down a footballing route, but he made a decision around 14 and a half to go the tennis route. But if he'd gone the football route, nobody would have, I wouldn't have had to do anything. Nobody would have known who I was. I'd have paid my however much a week for you know, the the training sessions and, and so forth. And then he would have been signed up by a club who would have taken care of everything, you know, from the media training to the bonus system, to the kit, to the training. Um, it's a very, very different world when it's an individual sport. And that's why you do find a lot of, let's say, over-the-top parents in, uh, I think, in tennis, golf probably is, is much the same. Having lived through a, a, a coach you know, athlete, father, son relationship. It's, I'm afraid it's a stereotype that it's difficult to escape from because the, 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 the first time people hear that you're a parent, they automatically assume that you're sort of living your life, you know, th through your child. I always, I remember to the mortification of my mother that my father actually ended up virtually in a fight at the side of a cross country course because some irate parent I'd, I'd sort of won the race by about a minute and an irate parent came across and said you know this is outrageous you're just killing this guy um, I remember my dad was not easily intimidated he was an East Londoner who'd been torpedoed in the North Atlantic so you know a little bit of verbal fisticuffs at the side of a, of a cross country course wasn't really going to destabilize him but he laughed and looked at him and said yeah I'm going to kill him all the way to the top but actually in his defense he came into the sport after I did and I think that the, the great role that often parents can play is that they can probably slightly slow down the ambitions of a child 
because they've also got a paternal, a maternal interest in making sure that there are other things in place in their lives that are are really important to them. Uh, and look, I, I I I hear what you say, and it's uh, it, it, it. I've had so many, you know, so many friends of mine who have gone in as as parents into coaching and and made a huge success of it. You tend to hear, sadly, you do tend to hear the sadder end of that spectrum. It tends to be the ones that that get. But I'm I'm actually interested because you talked about siblings and and and, and rivalry. It, it, I'm I'm silly question, but. If both Andy and Jamie were playing in a massive game at the same time, how would you make the judgment as to as to which one to watch, or would you do it on a laptop? <laughs> yeah, do you know? And it's amazing how often it it happens at yeah. the the Grand Slams or the the, the major events. Yeah. And and I keep thinking, does somebody not look at the order of play and say two names that are exactly the same and don't put them on at the same time? Especially at Wimbledon, that's the one that always kills me. And it happens so often there. And I find myself running from one side of the venue to the other to try and see both of them. But I, I used to do that. I used to try and split my time um, as evenly as I possibly could. But then I st- uh, they, they actually told me that they found it really tough if I left a match in the middle of it. Um, and so the deal is now that I go to whoever starts first and I finish their match and then I go to the other one and they know that, that that's what I'm going to do. And I'm not, I'm not saying it makes a huge amount of difference to them, but it actually you you realize it doesn't matter how old your kids are they kind of pick up on everything from you so if you start behaving a little bit differently or wording something differently or why are you acting like that why are you saying that um you know and and they so they would see it that if you know in a player box at Wimbledon suddenly you you leave and then the commentators also start talking about it why why sh- where's she gone and she hasn't come back and actually you were just trying to be to be fair to both I, I'm, I'm eternally grateful that my kids went in different directions in tennis that one does singles and one does doubles so they don't have to play against each other I think that I can't imagine what it's like for the Serena and Venus's mum and dad to have to watch them playing each other so uh, I think for um, family harmony it's great that they went in dif- in different directions they're, 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 from my, you know, from my observations, they're 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 they're, sl- they're slightly different in character. Do you have a different approach or a different message for them as as and when they're undertaking a, a, a big competition, or do you roughly say the same things to both? Yeah, I think um, that it's it's a good question. I think that you know maybe the last five or six years. You know, Jamie's 35 now, Andy's 33. They have strong teams of people around them. And I know enough about coaching to know that somebody, a parent or or somebody else, you can easily put a spanner in the works without meaning to by saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And so you have to, I think, as a parent, you have to trust the people who are around them. And if you've got something to say, say it to the coach or say it to the team but not to kind of wade in. I, I don't mean going and just saying something like good luck, but you know, if, if you had some kind of tactical or technical tip, don't rock the boat. Um, so I think, you know, bef- before they play now, I always just say, you know, good luck. Um, you know, whether that's on a WhatsApp or whether I'm speaking to them on the phone or, or if I'm actually there, because you have to trust that the work has, you know, has been done and like I said to understand that you could say something quite what you think is quite harmless and it 
can actually just make them think. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I say very little, very little now, and I actually quite like it that way. I, I'm always observing things, you know, like if um, when they're playing, I, I still am able to watch with a parent's eyes and a coach's eyes at the same time. And I'm still able to pick things where I think, oh, I think, you know, whether it's something they've done well or something where something where they've got into trouble a little bit, you know, on a regular basis. And I'll make a note of it, but I'll usually just ping it to the coach unless they ask me. It's interesting. I was, my, my father, you know, as, as, as I said, was my coach and you know, he sort of went to his grave with one great regret. And that was when he witnessed my day or so before the 800 metre final in Moscow he sensed that there was something that just wasn't quite right. But he was in that awful quandary that all coaches have. Do I say something and maybe introduce something into their mind that may be not there? Or do I sort of say, leave it alone? And, you know, and and in fact, he always said, I wish I'd actually sat you down and said, look, you know, let's talk about tomorrow rather than sort of leaving it slightly in the lap of the gods. And I, uh, and I, I know Eddie Jones, I, I spoke to Eddie Jones not long ago, he said that, you know, team talks and what you say and what you don't say under certain circumstances in coaching is probably one of the most delicate balances any coach can ever strike. Yeah, I agree with that because when, um, you know, obviously with, with my own kids, when they were younger, you know them very well as people. So you have a good feel for what they'll react and respond to or against. And I think that when I became the Fed Cup captain and I had to bring together five or six women who play the bulk of the year as individuals in what is essentially an individual sport. You have to bring them together and mould them into a team. And I realised that I had to take a lot of time before our first matches, um, you know, months, to actually go and be around them in their training environment, to go to dinner with them, to go to the gym with them, to understand what they worked on, to speak with them, speak with their coaches, to get to know them um, you know, you get a lot of tips from coaches, spend time with their parents, ask their parents things about what they respond and react to. And that investment of time is absolute gold dust because you have to sit on the bench with them and they change ends every couple of games, as you know, and you've got to fill that time. And how you fill that time, you need to be really, really have a good feel for what you're going to say, when you're going to say, how much you're going to say, um, and when you're going to say absolutely nothing at all. And it's not, it's really not easy. I'm not saying I always got it right. I certainly didn't. But without investing that amount of time to get to know them, there's absolutely, I could have done a whole lot of damage by chucking in something that just came at left field from them that was perfectly obvious to me and what I would think would be the right thing to do. So yeah, that it's, it's a really, it's, it's crucial that you understand your player and that you understand the art of communication. From everything you've said thus far in this this chat and everything that we've sort of talked about over a number of years, uh, I think I'm probably right in saying that I sense that you're your happiest on a tennis court with a bag of balls, unearthing and inspiring young talent. And I guess that was the driving force behind the Judy Murray Foundation, which is really trying to take sport to, to tennis into some pretty hard pressed and often rural communities in Scotland. Yeah, it it is. I think I started out um, about seven years ago now. 
um, you know, Andy and Jamie were kind of at the height of what they were doing. They'd been on the tour for some years. They were contenders in all of the major events and the profile of tennis in Scotland was through the roof. And yet we we have been and probably still are pretty much a minority sport. And a lot of that has to do with the perception of tennis being a little bit elitist um, and the fact that there are very few courts nowadays in state schools and in public parks. We lost so many of them over the years. So it it's tough to make it a sport for everyone because there's such huge pockets across our country where you can't find tennis courts at all. And if you don't find tennis courts, you don't find tennis coaches, you don't find activity, etc., etc. And so what I wanted to do um, was find a way to open tennis up to more people in the country. And I started this programme called Tennis on the Road, and it was basically a van full of equipment and myself and another coach. We got some funding for it, and we did about 100 days a year driving around the country in the, in the van, taking tennis into rural and disadvantaged areas. And, you know, I know enough about these things to know that you don't just go into somewhere for a two-hour clinic and then ship out and expect things to suddenly pick up from there. You actually have to keep going back and you have to create relationships with people in the community, start to build a network, but you need to keep going you need to keep going back. A one-off hit has an, maybe an immediate impact, but never a long-term one. And in these areas where tennis doesn't exist or where there's hardly any, you actually have to tennisify people. And that takes time. And so three years ago, I did that for four years. And three years ago, it kind of morphed into my own um, foundation. And we identified, it's just a small foundation, but we identified project areas and so we gave ourselves between two and three years in each of the project areas to build a network, to train people in the local community. So whether that's parents, teachers, students, club members, if there's a club, coaches of other sports, volunteers, basically anybody who wanted to learn how to deliver tennis. So, of course, we're spreading the word of tennis, but we're also creating opportunities for people to learn another trade, potentially for people to find some kind of role or empowerment within the in the community and it's I mean it's it's massively rewarding but you 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 know if you're going to take tennis if you're serious about opening it up you have to be prepared to go in and get your hands dirty and I, I love engaging with people I love being out in the field I don't care who's in front of me I don't care if the nets are held up with Tesco bags and there's moss coming through them I don't care I just want people to enjoy um my my sport and um yeah, you're right. I am. I'm at my happiest on a tennis court with loads of people. Don't care who they are, um, and and a, a a bucket of a bucket of tennis balls. Yeah, in my element. Well, uh, good, good. I'm I'm glad I picked that. And look, <laughs> you are very very familiar with the dynamic that is around community sport in the UK. I I tend to think that it's one of those things that has been neglected. We sort of rather feel that it. If it's going to take place, it'll take place because lots of parents and and coaches get together. But I think it's one of those big challenging areas. But I'm guessing you would also share my view that, as you've expressed just a few moments ago, it's not actually just about unearthing young talent. It's also about helping them make the right kind of decisions in life uh, and sport you know, will help them fashion their future. It's the, it's the great social worker, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, we all, you know, all of us who are involved in sport, we know that it can, that it can change lives and the life skills that you can learn through sports. I mean, for me, there's no question that 
I was able to be strong in a lot of the positions that I found myself in as an adult because of the experience that, that I had of the discipline, the routine, the leadership, the communication, the sense of belonging that came from being part of a community sports club and all the sports teams in school. So I, I'm a massive believer in, in that. And I remember you speaking at something at Hamden that I went along to. And one of the big takeaways from me from it was you said any sport is only as good as its grassroots and it really made me think about tennis in Scotland and I thought people are looking at tennis in Scotland and thinking wow isn't it great you know you've got Andy won Wimbledon Jamie won Wimbledon brilliant um and I'm actually thinking yeah but look at all these people who are become fans of tennis they would love to be able to try it and there isn't opportunity either because there isn't courts or there isn't activity or there aren't coaches or people who can deliver activity and that was really when I got off my butt to do something about it so it's entirely your fault. I remember that trip to Hamden it was actually on the eve of the 2012 games when we were doing our nations and regions programs and thank you 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 very kindly came came <laughs> out and no no you 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 very kindly uh, came out uh, and, and helped us there. Let me I'm I'm just guessing that it was during that period and certainly as a female tennis player trying to make your way into those ranks that you recognised the many roadblocks that there are for women aspiring to not only get into sport but play leadership roles in sport, maybe find that pathway into the upper echelons of the sport. I'm guessing that was the driving force in large part behind over the last few years, your advocacy, and actually in fairness as well, Andy's very, very strong advocacy uh, about the female role in sport generally. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're all formed by our own experiences. We're all products of our environment. And I think that a lot of the things that I came up against in terms of obstacles when I was a a player or the lack of opportunity certainly within Scotland um, formed me wanting to make a difference when I you know when I got the chance and I think that when I got into a position where I was being asked to speak out on behalf of women in sport was probably around the time or you know when I became the Fed Cup captain Fed Cup is the the female equivalent of the Davis Cup so it's like the World Cup of World Cup of Tennis and I got that role at back end of 2011 I did it until 2016 and uh, I would have said that when I got that role um, it was great for me because between 2005 when I stopped being the national coach in Scotland I did the national coach role for 10 years and 2011 I had six years where I became just Andy and Jamie's mum you know I was trying to help them with what they wanted to do I was learning about the life and business of a pro player I was trying to manage everything and um, and, and, and help them as best as I could and so I think probably most people kind of forgot that that I was a coach and then when I became the Fed Cup um, captain I was the first female captain for many many years and that will tell you a lot about uh, the fact that the majority of coaches in tennis at the top end are men even on the women's tour you'll hardly find a female coach so a lot of that is lack of opportunity lack of career pathway you'll find qualification pathways but you won't find career pathways in many governing bodies perhaps in any governing bodies um, in tennis and so I found myself in a position where I was having to speak out to raise the profile of 
the Fed Cup of our team and of our players. And I think the more that I got involved in the women's side of the game, it was very obvious to me very early on in that role how much harder you have to work to make things happen on the women's side than you do on the men's. You know, having watched what happened on the Davis Cup, for example, where you would have a bench full of, I think the last one that, that I went to, there was about 19 people on the bench. And I went off to my first Fed Cup and I was having to fight for a fourth member of staff. Now, that we were in a fortunate position because we're a wealthy governing body. You know, when I got to the Fed Cup and there were 15 other teams there, there were many countries who could only afford one coach with their team. No fitness trainer, no physio, no PR person, no video analyst, n- none of that kind of, kind of thing. So we're in a fortunate position. But I found myself having to fight for everything that was just taken for granted on the men's side. Um, and that was a bit of an eye-opener for me. And then I, I remember going along to something... Um, actually during the 2012 Olympics, which was a, that was a big thing for me, being the coach of the GB women at, at, a, at a home Olympics. It was absolutely It was a massive. pretty big moment for Andy as well. <laughs> it was, it was Thank huge. Goodness. It was huge, you know, and, you know, he, he didn't just win his gold medal. He, he won the silver medal in the, mixed, in the mixed doubles with a very young Laura Robson. And that was, that was, just, that was just an amazing, you know, an amazing thing. Yeah. But, you know, during the Olympics, after the tennis event was finished, I, I went along to a conference and uh, I listened to it was it was a conference that was just for women in sport, and I listened to amongst others uh, a, a speaker called Caroline McHugh, and she closed the conference and she was Scottish. She was the long black flowing robes, these piercing blue eyes, kind of almost shaved silver hair. She's a, a kind of I call her a baby Buddha. She says that I'm 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 being I'm 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 over egging it, but that was kind of what she made me feel like. She spoke in a way that you know the hairs on the back of your head, the goosebumps, and she afterwards I waited to speak to her, and she said, "Come over here, hen." And, and I had no clue that she would know who I was. Um, and she said, I think your laddie's wonderful and I think you're wonderful too. Uh, and I had no clue that she, that she, she knew me. She, huge tennis fan. Anyway, cut a long story short. I said how wonderful it was, blah, blah. And we arranged to meet up for a cup of tea because I was just fascinated by her. And she said, you could do what I do. You could stand up there and speak to people. And I went, oh, no, I couldn't. I couldn't. No, no chance. Absolutely no chance. She talked me into it. She said, you've got a voice and you should use it. And she actually really made me believe that I had a part to play. And yes, this whole thing is the, the whole stand up, speak up, show up thing. If we don't do it, if we don't make a noise, nobody will hear us. And that was kind of how I got started. She gave me that confidence that... And I started to do it and I was rubbish when I started, but I knew I was rubbish. And I've always been that way that if I'm not good at something, what, how do I learn from it? Like video it, watch it, watch people who are great at what they do, find ways that work for you. Um, and now, you know, it. like if somebody said to me right now, oh, somebody's let us down. Could you be down here in 10 minutes and give us a speak to us for an hour on whatever? I'd go, so long as it was something I knew something about, like tennis or women in sport or skill building in children or whatever. I'd go, yeah, sure. And I wouldn't even think about it, but you've got to do it. You've got to put yourself out of your comfort zone and make yourself do it. But actually what it showed me was that another woman sort of almost putting their arm around you and saying, you can do it. I know you can do it. I can help you if you want me to. And 
it makes a massive difference. And that formed me further down the line to set up programs like She Rallies, which is a female workforce build in tennis across the UK, building an army of women, creating something that's just for them, that sense of unity. Um, I've done a, a similar project in New South Wales with Tennis Australia, where I started with 20 female coaches. They had hardly any. The 20 became 40 because they each had to find one person. And then the 40 became 80. And now we're up at 150. And it, it's it's the power of the female the female army, but somebody's got to find a way to unite it. And that's why you need people who are experienced and recognisable to be the leaders and to give a message that people want to follow. So that, and I love that side of it. And Driving Force helped me enormously to understand the journey of women through other sports. Lots of similarities and, and lots of differences as well. Fascinating. Well, well, Driving Force, of course, found you on the other side of the... Uh, of the chair, if you like, because, you know, I'm interviewing you today, but you had some terrific interviews. I'm, you know, picking at random now, but Dina, Asher Smith and Kelly Holmes and Rebecca Adlington. Do you actually, did you enjoy that reverse role? I did. I, I, I really loved it because I spent about three hours with um, with each of them and I was genuinely fascinated by their their stories. I was fascinated before I started because obviously I did a lot of um, research on them. And, you know, for me, it was, I was so aware that, you know, we need to raise the profile of our female athletes. We need to make people aware of the journey, of the the highs and the lows and the the roadblocks. Um, But, you know, I'm so aware that so often as fans of sport, we see the end result. We see the Olympic finals or the Wimbledon finals and so forth, but we never think or see what went into getting to that stage. You know, who helped, who inspired, what events helped. I mean, you know, the 2012 Olympics was a massive driver for all of the girls in that, including Dina, who was only 12 or 13 at the time because she got um, a chance to be a kit carrier on one of the evening sessions in the athletic stadium and she got to see some of the Brits winning gold. And she said she was just so overpowered by the noise of the crowd, the excitement that she wanted a bit of that. And I think, um, you know, what that does is it, it raises the awareness of the importance of us hosting major events and getting our young athletes close to the action because the closer you are, you know, it's that whole thing. If you can see it, you can be it. So I I absolutely loved it. I, I'm not sure if I was very good at it or not, but the the thing for me was I wanted it to feel like a conversation. I'm not probing you. I'm not trying to trip you up. And, and I think that there are many female, there are probably many women, never mind female athletes, who are a little bit afraid of the media in case they're tripped up, in case they become, they say something they don't mean or it's twisted and they become a headline that, that they don't want. Because one of the things that was very clear from the, uh, from the, all the, the interviews in the driving force was, you know, how little they were prepared for success in terms of how that changes your life, suddenly becoming public property, everybody wanting a piece of you, having to face the media, being trolled on social media, that all of that is so important that when a governing body or a or a coach identifies a player to put them on the pathway, they absolutely have to address all the things that go into the life and business around an athlete, not just the how you kick a ball or throw a ball or run 100 metres, so that you equip them with the tools and the expertise that helps them to survive when they suddenly become 
you know, a gold medalist. Look, I think you've been characteristically modest. I actually took part in uh, a couple of your programmes and I was absolutely spellbound by the interviews and just the, the backstory um, that you teased out of people like Dina. And, and one of the great moments for me was actually BBC Review of the Year. I think it was a, a year ago after, or two years ago now, after Dina won her world championship, the first British woman to win a sprints title in a world championship. And they gave her, uh, her coach was, uh, was coach of the year. And you could see the closeness uh, 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 of that relationship. So I think that, that, that programme has really pressed the case for, for, for female uh, advocacy in sport and it's often the confidence I, I, I've spoken to a lot of uh, a, a lot of young aspiring coaches who have actually said the biggest challenge is that you know you, you don't want to appear too assertive you, you get criticised if you sort of uh, are taking not taking yourself but taking other people out of out of the comfort zone and look the, the more work you can do in that space and my great instinct is also male advocacy I hope we're not talking in 20 years' time about male advocacy being able to shift the dial, but at the moment it's really important that there is real support, strong support from men in those organisations to say, look, we need to be a fully in inclusive, in inclusive group. I'm interested because you actually suggested, I think, that the BBC Sports Personality of the Year or the Review of the Year, as we sort of now call it, should have a separate male and female category rather than lumping them both in uh, together at the same time. Yeah, I, I, I did. I think, um, you know, having done all the interviews um, for Driving Force in September, that as it got closer to the, the BBC Sports Personality of the Year, and they, you know, people were throwing out names as to who might be on the, the shortlist and so forth. And it just occurred to me that, you know, there's been so many years where, well, there's been so few female winners of it. Um, and, and so many times after it, you get the whole thing of, oh, there were 12 in it and there were nine men and three women and the three women ended up in the bottom three places and they only got this amount of votes and so forth. It, instead of talking about that, the negative side of it, why aren't we just judging a male winner and a female winner? Because they don't compete against each, directly compete against each other. And if we want to encourage more women and girls to get involved in sport, we need to raise awareness, we need to raise visibility. Um, so to actually be able to showcase the women in their own right, for me, seemed like a no-brainer. Let's have a male, a male sports personality and a female sports personality, because that way you are showing more of our great female athletes instead of just, you know, maybe a token one or two up against the, you know, because the the perception then is that male sport is, is more important. Of course, it's bigger because there are many more guys involved in sport and we see it much more because it has traditionally always been a male-dominated domain. But if we want to bridge that gap, we've got to make female sport more visible. So I it just seemed to me to be a... a a bit of a a bit of a no-brainer and it made me think of the BAFTAs and things like that you know you have best male actress best female actress you know they are playing different roles but we're playing different roles in sport because we're not competing on the same playing field as the or we're not competing against the guys so uh, yeah I would I would like to see that I think anything that helps us 
raise awareness and raise the bar for for women is is good and that would be that would be a big step forward i think well i i hope you're pleased in world athletics to mark um uh, global women's international women's day on march the 8th we're going to announce that we are going to rejig uh the competition schedule on the last day of our major championship so that we finish with a uh uh, the women's four by four and not the men's four by four. We could see no good reason why not to do that. And I think these are the things that are going to, that will, will slowly help. Uh, a quick question here. If it hadn't been tennis, what would it have been? Oh, goodness me. I think, um, you know, all through my high school years, I thought I was going to be a PE teacher because of my love of sport. I got to fifth year at school. There was a teacher strike and you know, the teaching profession was in, a, was in a bit of a mess and my form teacher advised me away from it simply because there were going to be no jobs. And I went to uni and I did French with business studies. Can't say I used either of those things enormously in my working life, although when I started to travel, being able to speak French, I, I did German as well, French, German and business studies, um, that, that was really helpful. But I do think for sure it would have been something to do with sport and probably probably would have just been a, a, a PE teacher. I think I'm just instinctively, I'm naturally a teacher. I'm always looking for ways in which people can learn things. Um, and, you know, I think being outside and being active is it's just a, such a massive part of who I am. So I think probably PE teacher. If you had a group of young people in front of you that may not actually be too imbued with sport or thinking of it as a way of life what would you actually say to them to encourage them into that um you know I think it's I actually my preference with something like that is and I've got a lot of experience of it of going into schools it's actually about creating an environment that is fun for them you know I always say that it's about fun friends and fitness or moving around and if you can make it fun with the content, the way you communicate, the way you organize, they will want to come back, but you have to create that environment. And it's another instance, I think, of if you can see it, you can be it. That sport is not just about, you know, getting hot and sweaty and building muscle um, or winning medals. This is actually about having fun, moving, enjoying physical activity, feeling part of something you know we have to have so much emphasis on recreational sport and you know it's just a tiny percent that will go to the, the performance or the top end so for me it's, it's like with the, when I do I always do big number things and when you do big number things you get a real mix of ability and concentration spans and uh, you have to be equipped as a coach to be able to deliver activity that is doable, that's fun, that it changes quickly so nobody gets caught up in, I can't do this or I'm far too good at this, I'm bored, I'm ready to move on. I use a hooter, like a party hooter to start and stop activity. So it's like, as soon as you hear that, stop, look, copy me, um, do the next thing. Here's some things that you can do individually. And when, thing, when kids do things individually, nobody's watching each other and it's quiet and it's calm. And then you move it into a, a paired thing. So you're working with somebody and then you move it into a team thing. So it's a group of three or a group of four. So I've got specific ways of working, but for me, it's about, I want them to come back. I want them to have fun. How do I do that? If I make it too difficult, too boring, too technical. It's the first experience. It's, they'll yes, go. Yes, of they'll course swell. it is. They won't so I, that's, that's yeah. why I'm such a big believer in the power of the workforce and preparing a workforce 
to sell what it is that we do because sport is competing with so many other things for people's attention nowadays, you know. So we're probably having to work harder than we've ever worked before to get people in and to keep them there. So, yeah, I mean, that it's a big part of why I do what I do and I make a big, big thing about the environment. And, and what I do is when I'm running workshops for teachers or coaches or parents, I will do the workshop with them and then I bring a class in and I show them what it looks like, how you organise it, how you run it. Because that's, at the end of the day, that's what they're going to have to do. So you want them to see it in action. So I am regularly putting myself in front of people that I have never met before and running a class. And, and, I, and I'm so used to doing it that it doesn't matter. But that's what we need is people who've got a real expertise in doing something and a personality to put yourself out there and let people learn from you. Because I'm always saying it, the quickest and easiest way to get good at something is work alongside somebody who's great at what, at what they do. It's not the workbooks and the workshops and the lectures and so forth. It's the practical experience. It's like osmosis. It just, you, you just absorb it when you're around great people. And I think all coaches will tell you that they have, and I'm sure you'd agree, they've, they've had great mentors, great inspirations, and a lot of athletes have gone into coaching, not because it was the thing that they obviously thought about, but they were inspired by the coach that they worked with you. Look, you've had an incredible life, and I, I guess from everything you've said today, that there have been some forks in the road and it's taken you in some unexpected directions. Do you have any secret ambitions left that you would like to share with those listening to us today? Um, yeah, I think my... Presumably, final... presumably not strictly. <laughs> no, I've done that. <laughs> I was spectacularly bad at that, but I had the best time. You know what experience that is? You know, talk about you going out of your comfort like zone. You were genuinely having fun on it. I did. I, I mean, so much of that was to do with my partner, Anton Dubeck. I mean, he was the perfect partner for me, made me laugh all day yeah. long. Um, yeah, but, you know, that's terrifying. I think I was 55 when I did Strictly and learning a brand new skill at that age, you know, it goes in here and out and out here because there's no room in your brain to, to learn something new and also to perform in front of a live audience doing something that you're hopeless at. But I went into it to have fun, uh, lasted in it until Blackpool, danced with Anton Dubeck in Blackpool Ballroom. I mean, these are one of the best experiences of my life, um, without question. But my final piece of my jigsaw is my tennis centre. Um, I've been working on it for seven years now. It, who knew that these things took so flipping long? It's been a real struggle, full of obstacles to get planning permission and so forth and put the funding together and everything. Um but just about there now, and I think about 10 years ago, I really started looking for somewhere where I could have a base. We are not blessed in Scotland with uh, a lot of great tennis clubs or indoor tennis facilities. And I think what, what I realised was I've got so much to share, but instead of driving around the country in a van, if, you, if I had a base to do it from, I can bring people in. You know, I can run competitions, I can run coach workshops, development officer workshops you know whatever it is because I want to leave the the I want to leave Scotland in good hands for the future for you know for tennis so I'm just about there with it and that is the final piece of my of my jigsaw well if it echoes everything else you've done in your life it will be a huge success thank you for being with me today I'm going to let you get back to your day job 
You're very busy. <laughs> it's a pleasure. It's great to speak to you. And thank you for being such a great male advocate of women's sport. That's kind of you. Judy, thank you very much. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales and Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSM 